the All Souls Witchy Women Podcast, Episode 4, The D Word. Welcome to All Souls Witchy Women, a fan and definitely not official podcast where we talk all things All Souls. We are three women who met over Outlander and then jumped into the All Souls world like the time-traveling witches we wish we were. In Episode 2, we discussed fear, and that discussion got us to thinking about how fear and desire are related in the All Souls trilogy. And about halfway through the first book, Matthew pointed out to Diana that as far as I can tell, there are only two emotions that keep the world spinning year after year. One is fear. The other is desire. Guys, I cannot wait to get into this one. So without any further ado, I'm Nikki. I'm Janet. And I'm Ashley. And we're hoping that you'll pour a glass of wine or your beverage of choice and join us as we talk about desire, the D word. So the last time we podcast, we told you that we were going to try to keep it spoiler free. We're going to go back on that a little bit tonight. Um, I don't know that we're going to be able to keep it spoiler free because I have a feeling that we're going to jump into the shadow of night or the book of life before this is over. So if you haven't read all three books, you've been warned. And we're also going to tell you again, read all three books. Do it now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What are you waiting for? (laughs) So the first page of A Discovery of Witches begins with, it begins with absence and desire. It begins with blood and fear. It begins with A Discovery of Witches. I'm going to say, when I first opened this book at Janet's recommendation, I read that and I was like, holy crap, what is this? I'm not even sure I know what this means. I'm not sure if this book is for me. Yeah, I I kind of wanted some cackling to come out of the pages once you hear that, like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, there was something so ominous about it. So I had the same reaction, but I knew Janet would not lead us astray. So I know we had complete faith in Janet, as we do. Mm -hmm. Although I have spent a lot of time thinking about these three lines, like, um, especially because, you know, we've all reread the books and... And I think it's interesting, sort of, the pairings of them, absence and desire. Desire is something, fulfillment of some sort that you're trying to have. And then absence, of course, is, you know, the antithesis of that. And I think think that's interesting. Absolutely. I do too. And then you just had me, this is like a, an SAT question. Like we're supposed to, where, you know, absence relates to desire as blood and fear relate. Wait, do those not do the same? But that's where my head was going. Like this could be its own SAT question. Yeah. Right. There you go. In fact, we should recommend that. I might've done better. If a book like this had been on there, I might have, I might've scored higher. Oh gosh. Yes. That was part of the study prep. Oh yeah. Ooh. If it is, I'm going to go back and take the SAT yeah. <laughs> just for fun. In theory, also, <laughs> if I had done any amount of study prep for the SATs to the degree to which I have poured myself into the All Souls trilogy, I also might have scored higher. Oh, see, right. Yes. But <laughs> go, go on, as you were. <laughs> <laughs> so I will say that when we started thinking about this idea to do this podcast on the D word, desire, I really struggled because... Yes, I understand it, but I was having a hard time wrapping my head around a way to talk about it semi-intelligently because that's all I can ever hope for, semi-intelligently. And I don't know how I stumbled across this article, but I did, and it was from Psychology Today, not something I normally read, but it was an article called The Power of Absence, and I wanted to read just a little bit 
from it. I thought it was so powerful on its own, but especially powerful as it relates to the book. It says that the power of absence begins with human propensity for the negative. Human beings are designed to be more sensitive and reactive to threat than to reward. We're impacted more strongly by pain than by pleasure. Frightening and sad events have the strongest grip on our memory. We fear loss more than we desire gain. These preferences and inclinations are easily understood in evolutionary terms, since the chances of survival are improved for those who perceive threats, respond to them effectively, and remember to avoid them in the future. In doing its job, evolution wired us for survival and not necessarily for happiness. The psychologist who wrote this, her name is Renee Garfinkel, and I wondered if Deborah Harkness was in her head or vice versa. Hmm. This spoke to me so strongly as it relates to this book, because I thought about all of the desires that Diana had, and they were all related to bad things that had happened in her life. She had a really strong desire to not use her magic, to not use her powers, because she thought they were tied to her parents' death. she, She wanted to keep that stuff at bay because she was such a strong grip of fear. Uh And I just wanted to see what you guys, am I on the right track here? (laughs) Well, I'm sort of fascinated by this idea. We fear loss more than we desire gain, Mm. which I think also goes to this idea of like desire as what are the differences between needs and what are the differences between desires too? But the Mm -hmm. idea that we fear loss more than gain, I don't know. That is an idea that I can't quite well, certainly it's the way Diana acts, as you pointed out. I mean, she, she absolutely is ruled by fear for a great part of this series and has been trained to feel that desiring something is a negative. I don't know. I feel like we're getting into sort of this autologic, auto- no, what is the word, tautological thought of going around in a circle about like it's negative this, but it's more of that. Mm-hmm. And, and anyway, <laughs> my my brain's exploding a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We need we need to keep your brain. We we need to keep it for a few more minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because mine's over here wallowing in self reflection. <laughs> so because I'm, I do want to apply it to the book, but there's just I, I don't know this this whole passage that you found is just so fascinating. Its end. People operate from almost up like you're saying a place of fear more than they do. It's not what this says, but the way that I register it as fear-based as opposed to kind of optimism-based, you know what I mean? Like, right. well, I, I don't I don't want to fail as opposed to I want to do well. It's like, uh, no, I just don't want to fail or I, w- I don't want to be harmed or I don't want to, all those are very I don't statements instead of I can or I do statements. Right. And I have used, and I won't, I won't say who now that I know that, <laughs> now that I learned that my family members are listening to this, I won't say who, <laughs> but I have often described one super close to me as um, a person who may not be wired for happiness. And I, so when you read that, it pretty much just hit me square in the eyes because this aligns to the T. To your point, like, I think Diana's are all so, they're all so physical in nature too. If you think about it, a lot of the things that threaten her are very physical. And so reading this, it is, it is about survival. So I can see how it's so applicable because, you know, that's, that's where she's working from. If I just do these things, if I just stay between these guardrails, if I kind of just put my head down in the middle of the pack, no one will notice me and I won't get picked off because I won't shine too much almost mm-hmm. as, uh, as, as a method of survival. Mm-hmm. Right. And even when she started to learn how to use her magic, when I was reading this passage today, when, when Matthew took her out behind her aunt's house and he was trying to teach her how to use her powers. So she, 
while she was thinking about it, she couldn't use them. And then once she when, when she started thinking and once she focused on the idea of survival, because it felt like he was trying to kill her. And, and, and he mm-hmm. said, I killed you again a couple of times because he kept sneaking up on her. And once she closed her eyes and stopped thinking and really focused on kill or be killed, yeah. her powers came to her. And I, I thought that was interesting in terms of you know, the evolutionary process, that that was something that all of her learning, all of all of her education could not help her. She had to let go and, and let those evolutionary instincts kick in in order to learn how to save herself and eventually him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that gets down to sort of this very elemental level. Can I, I, I want to throw in something here since you started with this psychology today thing that um, when I was sort of thinking about this and looking at info. This is, this is according to, this is from the second millennial, millennium BC. Okay. This Hindu Rig Veda, I don't know who it is, but he says that the universe began not with light, but with desire, which he calls the primal seed and germ of spirit. Desire constantly arises in us only to be replaced by other desires. Without the continuous stream of desires, there would no longer be any reason to do anything. Life would grind to a halt, as it does for people who lose the ability to desire. It is desire that moves us, and in moving us gives our life direction and meaning, perhaps not meaning in a cosmic sense, but meaning in the more restrictive narrative sense. It's this elemental, it goes, you know, you were talking, the thing that you were talking about references sort of this idea of evolution and sort of, and, you know, Diana, when she gets down to her gut instinct, right, and and just Mm -hmm. let it fly, but then it's, I think that we're also taught sort of in some other religious ideas that, you know, desire is bad and to negate it sort of like in Christianity. I mean, right. The four of the deadly, seven deadly sins, envy, gluttony, greed, and lust. I mean, they all directly involve desire on some level. And we're all sort of taught that they're not good for you. So you have bagged at least four of them today. I'm (laughs) just saying. Yep. Nice well, and then young. the other—I <laughs> <laughs> certainly, you know, gluttony. I I nail that one early, <laughs> on virtually every day of my life. So yeah, but and the other three: pride, sloth, which also reigns pretty high in my life, and wrath. Right? But we're taught that they're negatives, and yet mm-hmm. if we don't, if we don't have desire, we lose our motivation to. Right. So it's this constant sort of battle back and forth that, you know, Diana emblemizes on some levels, but her starts from this fear-based thing. But I think there's also a societal thing that is always suggesting to you, you know, desire is bad. Desire is bad. I mean, how often all the messages about sex alone? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, yes. or at least sex when I was growing up, certainly. All the messages I were I was getting were, nice girls don't. That's right. So, fill in the blank, really, basically. <laughs> I was about to say, nice girls don't blank. And then insert, right. yes. insert right. a few I, things that, as yeah. it turns out, won't kill you, don't harm others, and are quite enjoyable and add value to life. Yeah. But my mother's entire sexual message was, nice girls don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's amazing I got conceived, apparently, anyway. <laughs> it's not all that helpful, really, if, if you're using that as a guide. Yeah, well, it wasn't particularly helpful. I was <laughs> confused. So um, clearly, I, I, most of my sex education came from outside of my home, not from anything my mother told me. So there's that. <laughs> 
I think. Oh no, <laughs> Ashley went to sleep. No, 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 I didn't. I was, just, I was just getting the idea for a sister podcast, it sounds like, because I would like to be, um, I, it's all so fascinating as we've discussed before. We all, we all turned out okay. Surprisingly. Yeah. Well, see, I know my mother's not listening, so it's okay since she's not on this planet anymore, so I can say whatever I want. And maybe I should just lay out a blanket apology now, mom. I'm really sorry. Yeah, I think I, I think that works. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I love you, mom. You can raise the eyebrow now. Okay, continue. That's right. <laughs> okay. So, where, where are we with desire, anyhow? Well, I was thinking that maybe we would move on to the idea that magic is desire made real. And one of the aunts said this, and I can't remember which one. Was it Sarah when she was trying to teach when she was trying to teach Diana to do spells? Magic is desire made real. I can't remember who said it first. Sorry. I can't either, but I'm not shocked that it was one of the ants, the all-knowing ants. I just can't think of which. I want to say it was, I think it was Emily, but someone will correct us. I'm certain. Oh, I hope so. Listeners, right. So we don't have to flip back through the books. Not like we wouldn't be doing it anyway, but. Yes. Yes. So let's talk about that idea that magic is desire made real. I think just, I want to say one thing about that, because I think under that under that definition, which I think is super cool, we all have the ability to make magic. <laughs> yeah. Because if you, if you believe at all in the, the idea of trying to sort of, you know, without getting super woo-woo, but, you know, the idea of trying to manifest something... Mm-hmm. Then I think between the three of us, and I think people who are listening, um, everybody's had an experience where you were just like, I'm going to make this happen, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever the, this is. I really want this, and it's going to happen. And then it does. And in that sense, in sort of the broad sense, that's a form of magic. I- I'm sitting here beaming right now, Janet. I've just got this huge smile on my face because, first of all, whenever I hear the word magic, when it is not attached to a cheesy birthday party magician. Whenever I hear the word magic, I smile. It just makes me smile because I, and I think that might be some of it. Magic is desire made real because I do believe in magic because I believe that, like you said, if you really want something and if you really are determined to get it, you can make it happen. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that's what we're doing here. And I think that what we're doing is magical. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's all relative. You know, I can't unfortunately create witch water or flames or magical threads, right? But we all have our own relative form of magic that we're able to spin in our own lives and in other people's lives and in the world at large. And, you know, by sitting on your hands in general, you don't, you can't do anything. So even just by saying you have a desire to do something and then actually really, truly desiring it and putting Mm -hmm. something into action, that's that's what propels things forward. So I totally agree with you. I have never viewed the word magic as something that's, you know, fantasy and mystical and, you know, not of this world. I definitely think, and again, not talking about the Houdini, David Blaine kind of... (laughs) scary clown at the party type thing. Um, I I think that there is real magic to be had in real lives. And I I love that you brought that up, Janet. All right. Well, let's keep making some. Yeah. (laughs) I attached a lot to part of the book and the ants making her to realize because they'd be like, come on, do it. And then she would think about it. And she's like, it's not working. But then she would find things happening that she didn't wasn't even trying to necessarily make happen. But it's because it was stemming from a place of true desire. Things as simple as, you know, the butter made its way over to me. 
you know, <laughs> objects were moving. And it was because, you know, at the most simplest thing, because obviously there were some that had some some weightier meaning to them, you know, as far as her saving Matthew's life and, and doing some things. But when she wasn't even thinking about it, it was tied to something that she truly wanted. And then the magic comes alive. And not just because you say the words, because saying the words um, isn't enough to do it. And I love that because I think just even in our own lives and in human dialogue, you are probably, you know, part of enough conversations where there are empty words being spoken that are just being said to be said, either to fill air. <laughs> I know we all sit in day jobs where there's a lot of air being mm-hmm. filled by just by, by words flying around. And so they, they don't always have the magic to them that they're meant to have. You have They have to come from Mm-hmm. It all has to come from a place of true desire. So I liked the idea that it's not just like I said some spells because yeah, sure there is some form of that. Obviously, as you start talking about witches, but this is more that hers is tied to true desire and the things that she wants, and that is how it is made to happen and how it comes alive. All of this starts, and what what do you guys think of this? It, it all of her magic starts to come out sort of without her controlling it when she starts to fall in love. And so I'm wondering what you think love has to do Mm. with magic, because it's when she meets Matthew and, you know, she starts as she starts to sort of let her emotions come to the surface there and recognize them. That's when she starts to have more things start to happen, you know, where she creates fire she doesn't mean to, or she, you know, creates water and she doesn't want to. She's more aware and that just continues to sort of open up and she has to learn how to manage it, right? That's one of the things that, you know, why they go back in time, spoiler alert, because she has to learn how to manage the magic, but it's coming out because she's opening her emotions to love. Oh, Janet, I love that because I was sitting here thinking that, you know, when her magic starts coming out as she's fallen in love with Matthew, I think that also has something to do with the fact that she's not thinking about keeping things inside anymore. She's thinking about him. And so some of her attention or all of her attention has moved to him and not so much about just just keep walking forward, just keep your head down, just do this, just do that. All the things that she's had to remind herself of every day. She's kind of stopped thinking about those things and focused on him. And when her focus turned, she stopped thinking about those other things. And, you know, interesting things started happening. (laughs) It's it's such yeah. a great version of the look over here, bright, shiny object, you know, right? it's like bright, really immaculately put together, shiny object that smells like cinnamon and clove and has nice wine and a lot of cars. I would just like to say that I love that one of the first objects that obeyed her whim mm. was butter. <laughs> I Because I, I really identify with yeah. that. Like, girlfriend just needed some butter for her toast, and the butter was like, all right, I'll be right there. I got gotcha. you. I love it. Some Southern magic right there. <laughs> just, just throw a little butter on it. Everything's better I with agree. butter. She, every part of her knew that. Just brought that butter right on over. <laughs> Such a good point. Well, I did say semi-intelligent was all I would ever really hope to get. So I, I think I've just- I know. That. And what what is great about having three people is that you're semi-intelligent. I'm mostly semi-intelligent and Janet is full intelligent. So between us, we get like two mm-hmm. good brains, great brains. Right. I think. No pressure, <laughs> Janet. You guys. No, yeah, really. Come on, come on, come on. Do yourself an injustice. Um, plus, that's too much pressure for me, especially at this time of night. <laughs> Definitely don't have a full brain now. <laughs> but if you desire it, the magic will come alive, Janet. All right. Yes. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on that real hard. <laughs> so. 
Oh, man. Anyway, let's get back on track here. <laughs> Where are we? What is the track, really? Uh, yeah, well, there's that too. So somebody wanted to talk about the shadow of night and when Diana gets pregnant. It was me. It has to do with sort of so opening up to love and enables her to sort of govern sort of the ma- magic within her and learn how to sort of, sort of contain it. And I think it's also all part of sort of, I think we can only really fully understand how to work with desire if we understand ourselves because desire has a bad side. As, you know, I mentioned earlier with the seven deadly sins and stuff, you know, you can become greedy or if you have desire things for the wrong reasons and things like that. And I think that as she starts to become more open to um, understanding herself, she understands that her desires are actually a way of fulfilling herself and achieving her own selfhood. And I think that, you know, understanding herself is critical to, to sort of her being able to become the full powerful witch and full powerful woman that she becomes ultimately by the end of the book. This is explored more fully in The Shadow of Night. It really, you know, Book of Life is where it really comes to fruition. But as she starts to become, when she becomes pregnant, I think she starts to figure out, you know, who she is. Because, you know, you can't, as a woman, you know, you if you, it's hard to sort of, if you are having a, a child grow inside you, you are now thinking about yourself in a different way. She is, that affects how she thinks. She understands that she has to know herself in order to be the mother that she wants to be. So I think that's part of opening up to her magic as well. She feels a responsibility outside herself, which she also feels increasingly with Matthew because she loves him. Right, right. And I also thought in Shadow of Night, Goody Alsop tells her that desire is the basis of all magic. But she says, this I thought was wonderful. The words for weaving spells stem from that, not the other way around for weavers, which of course is what Diana is. Mm -hmm. And in other words, you know, Diana, all those years, Sarah was trying to teach her spells and she just was failing right and left because she memorized the words rather than feel what the spell was and let the words, you know, evolve from there. And that's, which is, you know, again, that's a much more innate way of being and a way that's more true to yourself, which is part of this whole metamorphosis that she undergoes through the series of the books. That sort of took me back to childhood and church. When I would hear people talk about you, you go to church and you go through the motions, you know, you sing the songs and, and you listen to the prayers and you do the recitation or whatever, you're just there and you're just, it's an exercise. Right, right. But it's a different experience altogether when you're there and you feel the words, you feel the power of the words or the power of the message or power of the prayer. And those are two completely different experiences that you can have in the same place, surrounded by the same people on different days. Diana has been very intellectual her whole life. You know, I mean, that's one of the things she's prided herself on and she's been quite successful. I mean, she's sort of touted as a rising star as a historian. And yet, you know, she's, and she's done that, you know, in part deliberately as a coping mechanism because of the pain of her parents' death and also just her general kind of concern and and worry that she would do something, you know, illegal by um, finding a book or reading a book or, you know, through magic rather than hard work. Do not remember where I was going. Well, you, you may not, but you just spun my brain in a place, um, which is that I think what I loved about it, and I, I swear, I think it's related, but this is where my, my head went is I love to your point that she has been a scholar and a hard worker and, you know, no, knows in a book, 
studying for so long. But in order for her to truly succeed at this, she has to let go of that, you know, that kind of formulaic mm-hmm. type of learning and more go into feeling and emotion. And yes, she is studying her own power and coming to terms with it and really kind of growing into it and figuring out what it is and how to use it and that sort of thing. But it's not done in the same way that she has always excelled in her career and in studying. It's taking a different kind of muscle and it's causing her to really reflect within and get emotional and have all those feelings that have been suppressed. And, you know, to Nikki's point, well, I can just, I'll just, I can just ignore that part over there while I'm looking at this part over here and focusing on my career. And, you know, like I said, knows in the book. So I love that it had to tap into a side that she hadn't been necessarily um, professed in using until then. And it took her going to an emotional place to get somewhere different. Well, thank you for saving me from my brain. (laughs) You know, unintended, but I love it. That's why we're a team. Yeah. Plus, I have to do that whole lead in about how I have the brain. But see, I only have a half of one. So all I did was complete your thought, you see. (laughs) But you also brought up, you know, I think this notion of her preparing to become a parent, to become a mother. And I think we've talked in previous episodes about how that just kicks something in, Mm -hmm. something very innate and mama bear like, like, let me just get my big paw around you and protect you is in its, you know, in its own way, obviously, uh, just a different form of strong love that is forcing that to come out. So when you were saying that as soon as she met Matthew, some of this started to really come out. And it's because yeah, her attention is pulled, but it's it's pulled in a good way, right? You're feeling this kind of deep, strong, protective, very powerful love. And in a way it is a lot, you know, to your point, you have to be able to figure out who you are and accept who you are. But it's also because you're feeling that type of intense love, whether it be with a, a spouse or a partner or romantic interest or, you know, with a child, that is something that, you know, obviously takes over and puts you into a different headspace altogether. I was thinking that right now we might stop and have our sommelier buyer tell us a little bit about some wine. And I believe that he has uh, brought us some Pinot Noir tonight. I believe that's what's in my glass. And he's going to tell us a little more about it. Hey, everybody. This week we are talking about Pinot Noir. Most people know of Pinot Noir from the movie Sideways. Uh, That movie simultaneously killed Merlot. But Pinot Noir is a phenomenal grape, a very light grape. For those of you that like lighter style reds, if you were to hold a glass of Pinot Noir up to the light or put a white napkin behind it, it should be very clear. You should be able to see right through it. That is what Pinot Noir is known for. Uh, Pinot Noir is originally from the Burgundian or Burgundy region of France, but we have phenomenal growing regions here in the United States. One of the best well-known areas is Oregon. It is a phenomenal area in which to get Pinot Noir from. They have the best growing conditions up there. For those of you that have not had Pinot Noir, if you drink Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio or Pinot Blanc, those are all within the same family. So if you have had those white wines and you have not tried Pinot Noir, chances are that you will like it. Also, if you are a collector, Pinot Noir is very, very high in tannin. Uh, That comes from the stems, but that also comes from aging the wine in new barrels. So for those of you that like to age wines from 10 to 15, even closer to 20 years, Pinot Noir is one of those wines that ages exceptionally well. You can drink it now, absolutely. But if you're looking to build out your collection, you can get some of the older style Pinot Noirs from the Burgundian region of France and domestically from Oregon and lay them down for 10 to 15 years, in which case they will be singing after such time. Enjoy. All right. So cheers, ladies. Cheers. Cheers. I knew there was a reason I was drinking Pinot Noir tonight. 
It, it is very fine, Pinot Noir. Let me tell you, I, I shall buy this one again. So um, I can hear you sipping. <laughs> I know. I did that very loud. It's good. It was an aggressive sip. Yeah, that's For fine. real moments, people. So, guys, I want to talk about sex. Let's talk about you and me. All the good things and the bad things that could be. Let's talk about sex. Yes. Did they get royalties because we just did okay. that? I think so. I think they'll get a little check in the mail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're welcome, Peppa. <laughs> and you too, and salt. salt. Yeah. Thank God. Thank God. Do it now and don't be gentle. I feel like it's the elephant in the room. <laughs> yeah. No, because, I mean, my mother's advice about sex aside, we can't have a podcast about desire and not talk about it. sex stuff. So. Yeah, so I, I don't think we can talk about desire without sex. We were trying to be professional about this and not do sex just right off the bat. So I know, people we, know that we can think about other things. I mean, we did Buddhism and psychology today. So. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I think we paid Absolutely. our dues. So here we go. Diana, desire, Matthew, sex. <sighs> I, I'm just going to say that I think that Diana's desire for Matthew is all-consuming. And and I wrote something about this a couple of weeks ago because I was very emotional because my other half wasn't with me. But it, it feels to me when I read this book that Matthew is like her oxygen. And she needs him. She needs the oxygen that he gives her. She needs it to survive. And I feel like her parents knew this as well because they, they tied her magic to her desire and her desire to him. And they knew she would have these feelings for him. And she needs him as much as she needs anything else in her life. And I think that's some pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. And it's echoed, you know, sort of metaphorically by the chain, um, you know, and chain um, described in sort of the most beautiful terms rather than mm. like, you know, a ball and chain kind of negative connotation to it. It's, you know, and I think it's important to know that I think, I think it's shared. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. what, you know, I think one of the things that's beautiful about their relationship is, you know, initially Matthew is almost two dimensional in the way he's described um, in his desire for her in, in this sort of overprotective, you know, typical kind of classic, vampire way mm-hmm. is how is how it's described in, a, in an animalistic you know mating that sort of thing but as Matthew peels away his secrets and as he al- allows himself to sort of understand that his desire is not necessarily tied to his blood rage you know biology is not necessarily destiny which is something that comes up later in yeah he too can learn to let himself feel his desire and not have it you know not have it be a place where his fear holds him back and that's i think epitomized in shadow of night where they are doing the where she allows he drinks from her heart vein and he kisses her on her which is third eye so he can they can each see each other's thoughts and which is the ultimate i think sexy moment mm-hmm. right somebody with whom you don't have any no secrets joke. i mean come on i agree we've already broken the shadow of night seal so yeah i did one of the the moments that i love from that book is where he he drank from 
from her, her heart's blood. And then she could hear his thoughts. She knew exactly what he was thinking and feeling and when he was telling the truth. And I, I think that is such a powerful image, but I think it's a powerful metaphor as well, being being that connected with someone. And, and I certainly feel that way with the man who lives in my house that, you know, he doesn't always have to say I've had a bad day or I'm pissed off or whatever. He just kind of gives me a look and I know and, and, and it works vice versa as well. You know, he he just knows he senses it. And, you know, I think there is something very sexy, very sensual about having another person on this earth that you can share that kind of connection with. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And there's something too about, you know, you just pointed out when it's just, it's intrinsic, you know it without the other person saying it, but there is something too about consenting to the idea of letting someone in that fully through these mechanisms of how they get in and not being, having any reservation whatsoever. Cause you know, I just feel like any more people, uh, I don't know, always have one, like one line of cautiousness of like, well, no, you're getting in, but you're not getting past this point. I still have this amount that's just for me, but really these two through these methods are saying you are in and you know, as much as I'm able to know, because this is as completely as you can know me without me putting up guardrails or putting up any sort of, um, barrier to letting you see it. And Diana's the pusher there. She, she's the one who really sort of pushes on this, which actually is sort of not ironic, but it certainly is. It, it shows her um, initially she's the one who's reticent, but she's the one who keeps sort of chipping away at it and sort of saying, no, Matthew, we have to go here. We have to go here. So she's, she takes the lead. Can we talk about foreplay? Oh, please. <laughs> well, yes. Let me fan myself, Miss Gastineau, and get some wine. <laughs> <laughs> What would you like to say about foreplay, Nikki? So I I think I mentioned this in the first podcast that we did, but I I don't think I've ever read a book with so much foreplay in it. It's all foreplay for the first book. And and so we we find out as we go along that Matthew says we have time because he's a vampire. Of course he has time. He's got fifteen hundred years of sex to remember. <laughs> it's no biggie to him. And she's like, No, come on, let's let's do this against the apple tree. And he's like, No. This isn't gonna be it. Not here, not now. And so he he tells her that he wants the moment to be right. They've got time. He he wants them to have this amazing shared intimacy. And we learn later that he's got other things in his head, that it's not just that. He's he's worried about whether or not they can conceive and all of those things. But if we take him at face value in the first book and just assume that he wants to focus on the intimacy, I think it's pretty amazing how they get to know each other, how they get to know their bodies through these nights that they're able to spend together at, at Septours and her aunt's house and how much they had explored each other before they actually consummated this thing. Actually, sometimes you're reading a book and you wait for them to, well, do it. And then you're like, all right, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to regroup, put this into a semi-intelligible thought. When they finally did consummate their marriage, it was kind of I'm not going to say it was anticlimactic, but it was like, okay, well, they did that. Because everything before it had been so much more intimate and so much more meaningful, I thought. This is the first book I've read where I thought the foreplay was actually better than the sex. Mm-mm. Is that weird? I, I actually join you in that camp. And maybe it's because, um, and I feel like Janet bore the brunt of this because I kept going, where's this headed? Are they getting, is it? And you were like, hang in, vampire sex is coming. It's fine. Just hang in there. 
And then I got to the end of the first book and I was like, well, it's not coming in this book. And then I really was like, this isn't, oh, please tell me you didn't just wrap me into like the the Stephanie Myers Twilight thing where there's some um, maybe religious guilt baked into there about how we must wait till marriage. And it was like, no, this is not that necessarily. This was really about taking time to get to know each other. And um, it just mm-hmm. so happened and that happened to be after they were married that they consummated. But I think you're right. I think, and what is the term they use that it's it's blanking me now? It's very the Amish like. What is it? Bundling. Bundling. There Bundling. it is. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It yeah. made an impression. It's it's. I did yeah. some googling. Right. <laughs> I mean, apparently remembered everything <laughs> I googled except for the term. Um. But I I would agree with you. I think I have never enjoyed as much getting to know two people getting to know each other through the words of Mm -hmm. Deb Harkness as I did reading through this entire first book and then a good portion through the second before you arrive at quote unquote you know the big event which to your point did feel Mm -hmm. quasi anticlimactic to me not in a bad way because it was like oh that's it but more of like a this is just icing on the cake because I have been thoroughly enjoying this whole intimacy journey that they've been on and now this is just like, well, that's great. Now we're there too. That's awesome. But it's not like the, anything was lacking right. for me beforehand. Well, and I think that the the whole time concept works in too because it builds desire in addition to sort oh, of, yeah. you know, satisfies desire, but it sort of builds desire and it enables you to open yourself up to admitting desire um, as well in a way that I think is less potentially threatening or fearful or whatever mm-hmm. if 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 admitting desire is anxiety producing, which I think it was for for both Matthew and Diana, but for different reasons, then it's, you know, this is a way to sort of ease, ease into it. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, talk about anxiety, like until she really understands what, what his deal is with waiting, she just keeps kind of processing rejection and being like, what, what is it that right. I'm not doing? What is it? Are you not into me? I'm like, he's just not that into me. And and it, no, it's not that. It's just really about we do have time. I think just even watching her stumble through that felt human to me because I'm like, that's where my brain would go. You can tell me that it's it's not you. It's right. us. Let's just get to know us. Let's get to know each other and the, and the us as an entity. But if you're in that moment, you're mm-hmm. like, man, we're, we're like rounding third base against a tree. Are you sure? <laughs> um it's really mm-hmm. hard to be like, is is it really because of time? And so I, I even enjoyed her quote unquote rejection because you have to process that. And that's a human emotion too. Like I admitted my desire and you seemingly are not allowing me to achieve it, but it's like, I am, it's just, you have to be patient. It's coming. It's, it's definitely a long slow burn as opposed to like a quick gratification. And if that wasn't, mm-hmm. <laughs> overtly double entendre my bad oh there were so many that was like a quadruple entendre good i'm glad it hit (laughs) so on the flip side of that though we've they had this this long courtship and and lots of bundling and 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 all of that and then we go into the shadow of night when she's had a miscarriage and they're both trying to work this out emotionally in their own separate ways and for understandable reasons they've grown apart and then there's the scene which 
I'm not going to lie, I love where he backs her against the wall and they have some rough sex. It's the opposite of all the stuff that we just talked about. Also very satisfying because he spent all of this time holding back with her and sort of bringing her along with him on this, this slow burn, like you said, Ashley. And then there's that moment where he just gives in and says, no, I, we have been apart physically, emotionally, spiritually for too long. And we, we have yeah. to be together <laughs> right now. And oh, I love I that so much. I mean, it's like, well, we've received full clearance because this isn't the first go. So I don't feel so bad, but I, it also, what I love about it too is that, you know, his desire is always presented as being so super measured and controlled, yes, except that absolutely. because he's like, no, no. And, you know, I've, I've got it under control, except that he's the one, if we'll remember, who at any point can experience blood rage and primal hunting and sexual <laughs> desires and all sorts of things that could turn animalistic very quickly if that control is gone or if it, he chooses just to kind of bypass those controls. Um, even as he's desiring to keep it in check. And this is one time when he's like, I'm not desiring to keep it in check. This is what we both need. I know, I know you, I know us, this is it. And that's trust in a partner too, for her not to feel threatened and for her to be like, okay, I'm in. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like the perfect mix of, of desire and, you know, yeah. in that it's in balance, you know, while it was this moment of, you know, seemingly letting go and being sort of extreme. In fact, it was a moment of balance because they had achieved the intimacy and um, the understanding and honesty. So that's when you can let yourself feel like that. Mm -hmm. it, and admitting your desire is okay because you're, it's a safe, it's a safe place to do it because of the relationship. Is, is this the safe place to go ahead and the trio of us admit we wouldn't mind being backed up against a wall by a vampire? Have we finally <laughs> arrived there? <laughs> I think if there's any place to do it, this is it. Asking for a couple friends. Yeah, that could happen. Could it? Really? Because I'm in. <laughs> yeah, and I think that probably is uh, where we should end this podcast. <laughs> oh, Janet. I, but I'm not even finished with my wine. That's how we know how to stop. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> that's a good gauge. But we've officially succeeded in just a, I just can't bring this up enough. The U2 song has now played in my head for about three weeks. Oh, I know. It's, it's been really, strong. These last the boys, few Bono and the boys, they're just, they're drumming away in my head. So I think we've definitely done desire. Yeah. So with that, any parting words, anything else you guys want to say about desire? I mean, I just, I think it's huge. I think it's so huge in this series that it was very daunting to me to even wrap my uh, brain around how to break it down into a, a, a podcast that we tried to keep at less than an hour for the episode. But I think as you dive into it, it it's not as scary as it seems. And maybe that's a metaphor for the whole thing to start with, you know, <laughs> really chase our own tail worrying about, you know, to your point, the anxiety of having desire and the shame of certain types of desire and all of that when really there's magic within. Don't be scared. And desire can be a good thing. If, you know, you're worth having some desire, right? It's okay. Right if you desire certain things. Well, Ashley stole my words because I, I wanted to, 
You know, the, the thing that I wanted to say is absolutely. When we started talking about this as an episode, I thought, well, of course we should do desire. And then as I thought more, I thought, well, no, it's, it's just too big. I don't even know where to start taking this apart. And like you said, as, as, as we started talking about it, you realize, no, first of all, this is all very relatable. And, and secondly, it's just, it, it's ever present in this book in so many different forms and, in so many different people and so and in so many of Diana's actions. So um actually once we started once we started writing yeah, down some ideas, exactly. it was hard to know where to stop on the topic. And we're having a hard time stopping now. So I desire to keep hanging out with you all. What are we gonna talk about next? What letter what? of the alphabet? Take us there, Elmo. Should I go get the Scrabble bag? I'm gonna do it one day. I have a letter in mind, but Do it. Oh. Say it. Say it out loud. That's not yes. even the one I thought you were gonna say. <laughs> We just talked about sex, Janet. <laughs> Janet, I'm worried about you. How much can we talk about sex? Well, I will just say that when I, my husband told in the first episode was the O word, he looked at me and he goes, really? Mm. And then I said in the second one's the F word. And he's like, what are you guys doing? As Nikki's uh, main man, what did he say? What kind of perverts are you? <laughs> yes. So I'm just going to throw out there S and you two can stew on it and I'll let you know um, what I think it should be for S. How about, yeah. And when people listen to this, they can take a guess at what they think the S is because that's what I'm doing right now. Actually, if you could give Ashley and me some hints, that would be awesome. So please feel free to message us. All right. (laughs) All right. So I think with that, we are going to stop talking about desire, even though it's really, really difficult. And we want to thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us as we discuss all things, all souls. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And that if you feel inspired, you'll leave a review on iTunes. If you'd like to join in the conversation, find us on Twitter and Instagram at All Souls WW, on Facebook at All Souls Witchy Women Podcast and Blog, and online at All Souls Witchy Women.com. See you soon. 